Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 321 with Katia Beauchamp of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. What's going on, Founder Fam? Hope you are doing okay during this crazy, crazy time. What a year 2020 has been. Uh, wherever you are in your business journey, we are here to help serve you however we can. We've got always just like content that will help you if you're starting a business, growing a business, scaling a business. Or if you want to take your existing offline business that's been affected by the pandemic online. If you want to know more and how we can further serve you, we don't just produce awesome podcasts. We produce incredible written content on the founder site, founder.com, amazing videos. A lot of these interviews are now in video form. We've got how-to videos, vlogs, behind the scenes, how we're growing our company, and so much more. So just go to founder.com, F-O-U-N-D-R.com. Now let's talk about today's guest, Katia Beauchamp, uh, incredibly successful founder. She's the founder of a company called Birch Box. And yeah, like I, I'm, I know a lot of you may have heard of this brand. Uh, they are a market leader in the subscription beauty box space. And Katia was basically like one of the first people to start doing this kind of beauty box subscription business models. And uh, the company has grown very, very fast. They have more than 2.5 million active customers. And we talk about that journey, how she came up with the idea, 
how it's progressed over time because it's been over 10 years now how if you want to conceptualize and have a subscription-based physical product business is that the answer I know that a lot of people like the idea of subscription. I do too at Founder and I talk to her about that and so much more. And also this interesting thing that I learned from Katia around this obsession that she has and this idea of creating relationships at scale. The more and more we do things at Founder, the more I'm thinking about how can we further develop a relationship with you you know someone in the founder fam like someone in our community how can we have a relationship with you where you just love this brand and you know you don't have to buy our products but you know you do share what we do with your friends and you do recommend us as a place to learn what it takes to build and grow a successful business so we discussed that and so much more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Katia. And uh, yeah, guys, if you are enjoying these episodes, please do leave us a review wherever you're listening, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, iTunes, you name it. So guys, that's it from me. Now I'm to the show. Katia, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, the first question that I ask everyone uh, that comes on is uh, how did you get your job? The current one, <laughs> I guess I hired myself. Um, yeah, so Birchbox came out of a business school ambition that was much lighter than starting a company. It was the ambition was just to learn how to write a business plan. So my co-founder and I decided that before we graduated, we wanted to learn how to write one. We were good friends. We thought we had complementary skill sets. And so we kind of set out on this project of write a business plan. And we looked out in the world, noticed women, female founders were kind of more in style, if you will, accepted. Um, and the conversation for female founders was serving a female consumer. There was a lot happening in fashion. And so uh, an obvious adjacency was beauty to fashion. And nobody was talking about beauty. And we were confused by that. We were, you know, business school students and we thought, isn't this a big industry? Why is no one also trying to disrupt the beauty industry while they're disrupting fashion? Um, so we thought about it and we did a little bit of research and we realized that in 2010, only 2% of beauty was sold on the internet. And that was staggering to us. But like more staggering was that there was no signs of change. There was no uptick. There was no change in the trend. Um, and we just got so excited. We legitimately kind of felt like we just landed on a treasure. And we were like, oh, my gosh, does anybody know that beauty is next? And we are going to be the ones to figure this out. Now, backtrack, like we actually started doing research and we realized like beauty had a huge moment in the 90s with like Internet, I guess, 1.0, we'd call it. We didn't know that at the time. But we just knew that more people were spending their time looking for information about beauty and content about beauty. And it was natural to think about like kind of closing the loop there. So we kind of we talked amongst ourselves initially and said, like, why isn't this happening online? And we came up with a hypothesis that the general kind of friction in shopping for beauty overall is that there's too much of it. 
And that for most consumers, that's kind of the inherent question of why are there so many choices of shampoos, mascaras, like when do I put a serum on? There's just so much to navigate that we were economics majors and we recognize this idea of the paradox of choice, like people are opting out of the choice, a lot of people. Um, and at least that's how we felt. Um, and we also obviously recognize that beauty is such a tactile category. People wanted to play with it and smear it and see the colors and smell it, um, that the internet was just not an option. So we hypothesized that the 2% of beauty sold online was 100% replenishment, which is like, you know, I already have this thing and I'm going to buy it again. And that became like a really big opportunity in our minds because we realized that the beauty brands, the industry was just launching new stuff all the time and that the internet wasn't even possible to deal with the new things. Like the internet at this point only had the potential for replenishment. And we felt that was a really big kind of incongruency with the goal of the industry that was constantly innovating, constantly launching, constantly changing, that the internet could only deal with replenishment. And we just kind of set out and said, we're going to give the internet the potential to sell you a beauty product for the first time. Like, you know, and, and how would we do that? And we kind of recognized the steps for a consumer involved, you know, hearing about it from somebody, ideally someone you trust who's avid. And then depending on the price, like you go and you try it, you know, if you can you go to a department store, you go to Sephora. Um, and so we just kind of try to collapse that funnel of saying, okay, well, we have to build a brand people trust, which is obviously the hardest thing. We have to give you like a finite amount of choice. And we have to give you this ability to try before you buy. And in about 48 hours from like, kind of nascent, like what's going on with beauty online, we had a, the business model of Birchbox that you really see today. Yeah, wow. So um, how has the company evolved since like fast forward to now? you know, 10 years later. Um, yeah. Can you give like uh, for people that haven't heard of you, that have been living under a rock, like, sure. uh, yeah. Like what kind of, well, um, yeah. Well, I mean, in some ways it's evolved a lot and in some ways it's the exact same concept. So when we launched the idea, it was very simple. We would send you a monthly box of personalized samples, $10 a month. And it was us only. And it was um, beauty products only. And the idea was, you know, you would get the product to try, we would continue to make you content and kind of serve you with the content about that product, and then invite you to purchase from us with like a loyalty program that made it, you know, compelling. And today, I'd say, you know, some of the biggest evolutions are obviously the amount of product we have when we launched, we had, you know, like eight things. Um, now we have 1000s of things and every single month because of the amount of different profiles, we're creating up to about 100 to 200 box types in the US and an additional 100. We're now um, global. So we have operations in Europe. We have a grooming box too, which creates another kind of 10 to 30 different box types. Um, so the amount of things that we're like kind of sending out into the world every month has really, really changed the amount of personalization needed. And I think, um, you know, the other kind of big change that I feel for Birchbox is when we identified the problem, which is still a very similar problem today. There's like so many choices. Um, and how do we kind of make discovery joyful? I don't think we really understood the opportunity that we now understand, which is it's actually like not joyful for, um, for a consumer who's not passionate about beauty. 
And the industry really has pandered to the consumer who loves beauty and almost, you know, assumed that the choices were pleasant because look at all these options. You can buy something for six, you can buy something for 60, you know, that gives the consumer this range, this optionality. But for the majority of consumers who are not the hyper passionate consumption, you know, like I want this so bad, I just want to like play in a store for hours at a Mecca, Mecca is gorgeous. Um, you know, for most of us, that that's not enjoyable. Like we are, we are literally confused or we don't have time to navigate it. So we end up basically just doing the same thing for decades. Um, so our, the biggest kind of, I'd say pivot is in the focus of who we are, we want to serve at Birchbox, which is the casual consumer. So we have, um, obviously respect for every consumer, but we are very distinctly building for someone who is not passionate about beauty, who is purposeful, and who we are not trying to convert to be passionate about beauty. We believe every consumer has the right to feel joy when they are in a category that's discretionary, which is this, um, and not feel kind of bored or confused or inadequate. <laughs> um, so that's the the purpose for us is how do we make discovery delightful for that consumer? And that's kind of the biggest pivot um, is just being much more targeted on a consumer who doesn't love beauty, who probably doesn't love makeup as much, who's much more about like kind of their best natural self, but not as much about like contouring or like transformation or anything that would take, frankly, time. <laughs> um, so that and that has actually informed kind of some of the other biggest changes in the market, which is now we have real competition, particularly in the US. But um, as that competition's come up, I think they've also kind of done the natural thing, which is serve the consumer who loves beauty. And so it that continues to be a really helpful prioritization for us and a focus for us, which is that that's not who we serve. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. So, um, just so people can get an idea of scale, would you be able to share kind of uh, top line annual revenue, customers, anything? I can't. I mean, we're large. Um, sometimes like staggering to think about it because we've, we've been large since early days. Um, yeah. It happened very fast for us. But, you know, the bottom line is this is still a very, un I mean, beauty at most is 15% online now. And we all know that in this moment with the coronavirus, there's going to be a shift in the channel penetration. There's a really big opportunity still for this category. And I know that subscription businesses as a, as a subset of e-commerce are now considered the fastest growing part of e-commerce now, because I think the idea that you kind of do the work of discovery for the consumer is becoming a more accepted and enjoyable concept. So, I mean, I think that this is our aspiration just to be like very clear is to be a key channel in the same way you would think of Sephora or Mecca, you know, you would think of Birchbox to buy your beauty, but for this customer. So for someone who's like, I'm not obsessed, you know, we want you to be like, oh, so I should go to Birchbox, right? Um, who kind of has the same philosophy around beauty that I have, or if somebody that you cared about, your friend, your loved one, you would say, oh, you would really prefer Birchbox as the place. So our ambition is huge. We want to be a global major channel in beauty. Um, and there's still a lot of room because 
to the thing we um, talked about before we started this interview, there have been a lot of challenges that, you know, like in building a business for 10 years and figuring out how fast to build it, how fast to expand, you know, those are things that are, you know, really difficult and exciting, but they're not as straightforward as they could seem or, you know, it can seem from the outside. Yeah. And I'd love to delve a bit deeper on that. Um, but before we do, I, I find it really interesting around this pivot, around this this specific kind of consumer where, to be honest, it sounds like they would get the most value from your product and probably would be the most stickiest because they, they, are, they are getting the most value because you're removing that friction that, that they would have. And not only do they get the most value, but the industry gets the most value from this because we're not focused on taking the beauty industry pie and taking our slice away from department stores, you know, there's a lot of changes here in channels. We're focused on making a new pie, right? Because our hypothesis and our data shows this customer is under consuming because when you are not a priority, when this is not your passion, you're not trying to kind of consume better. Most of our customers describe themselves as having kind of set their routine in their teenage years and largely doing the same things into their thirties. Maybe here and there they've traded up, but they're not you know, passionate about exploration. And frankly, we all have, most of us who are this consumer, I consider myself this consumer, though I know a lot. Um, we're, you know, we all have the experience of going to a store and being upsold and then being, you know, very frustrated, buyer's remorse. Why did I do that? I don't understand why I bought all of this. I don't understand how to use it. And frankly, it ends up not being something that you enjoy. So yeah, the concept that this consumer deserves joy and to feel empowered, you know, just as someone who is passionate would do the research and then say, I know I want to buy a $30 shampoo, right? I've done the research. I understand the ingredients. Like this consumer can have this very lightweight way of suddenly kind of having an opinion about where they want to direct their discretionary dollars and saying, you know, maybe I want to invest a little more in skincare, or I really do feel I'm getting the kind of return on investment from a good shampoo. I'm going to buy one. I'm going to finish it. You know, so I, that's really the kind of how we describe joy for this customer is feeling smart, you know, feeling like you're a smart consumer in the space and feeling like, you know, where you want to invest um, is really a joyful feeling for a lot of us, not just like the amount of beauty or, you know, that's a different category of joy of like, I just want everything it launches. I want it. Um, so we're, we, yes, exactly. We think that this is tailor-made for this consumer to have a really different experience without changing their philosophy and their like priorities. Um, and we also think that's a win for the industry because that basically allows this consumer to consume more, but on their terms without having to be kind of in the sales environment that feels pressure and like feels like it could come with buyer's remorse at the end. Just on this topic, because I find this really fascinating because so often when people launch businesses, they try and scratch their own itch or they think that they are the consumer. Is that what yeah. happened with you at the start? Like you guys thought you are the consumer? Yeah. I mean, yes, because everyone told us at the start that Birchbox was a dumb idea. We were like, well, we're 27-year-old smart women and we feel we would pay for this. Everyone's response was no one will pay for this because – sampling was seen as a free gift and consumers were used to getting it for free. And we, and we thought, well, we're not stupid. We would pay for this. You know, we feel that kind of the way sampling is done 
is very different from what we're trying to do. Sampling, you know, in 2010, 10 years ago was much more about creating loyalty with an existing consumer, you know, whether it's with a retailer, with a brand through a gift. And most brands told us that they estimated 90% of their samples were never open. And we were like, oh, cool. So a gift that goes in the garbage, how lovely. So we really tried to show that sampling could incite a purchase, right? With the right context, with giving it to somebody with intent. And also, by the way, charging someone for it versus saying it's a free gift. So saying, we chose this for you. It's going to work for your needs. You know, you might not love it, but it's going to work for you. It's not a miss. And you bought it. So you might as well try it, right? And that was a very, very big shift. And yeah, we were definitely thinking of ourselves, though we didn't have the names that now we have, you know, the casual consumer understanding it's 70% of the market. You know, we absolutely didn't know anything about the industry, but we definitely felt that we were, you know, women who were like semi-engaged in fashion, semi-engaged in beauty, just like it wasn't our first priority. And we were looking at each other like, do you know how to use this? I don't know how to do it. You know, we were, we were like, we're smart. And it just boiled down to like, we don't care enough. You know, we're not buying beauty magazines. We're not like, oh, I'm so interested. Let me just sit down here and figure this out. So we were fine. And this idea of like, fine in a discretionary category that's also marketed to us to be like so fun you're like that's not what we're experiencing here what if like more people feel like this right fine or in a rut and how do we change their whole experience because we deserve it too it's it's our money it's our time and we shouldn't feel like want want about it you know (laughs) that's kind of how we felt and so yeah we were thinking about us but But like I said, we didn't have some sort of sophisticated view of this. We were just like, other people must feel this way. That was the thought. Interesting. So um, talk to me about the early days. How did you guys launch? How did you guys get your first batch of subscribers? How did you go to market? So we went to market initially in a beta test. And um, for that, we had 200 spaces, I guess, or boxes that we knew we could make. And we basically, we went to people we knew that were not our friends, um, but we knew. And we said, you know, you know us, so please don't sign up, but will you share this with your network? So we selected people who were in law schools or consulting agencies or kind of like a key member of their community. And we thought that they had enough like reach. And we just asked them, will you forward this email? And the email invited people to, um, to pay us $20 for two months up front for this, like describing kind of what this was. And that's how we launched. And we were able to fill the 200 spots pretty easily from that. We sent about 40 emails. Um, and then we amassed a wait list of about a thousand people. So once we came out of beta, just from that like group who started telling their friends, um, we then used that list to start the business in the September. We started in March 2010, and then we launched out of beta in September 2010, and we started with a you know little over 600 customers. Yeah, wow. And to first obtain the samples, did you just go to a big box store, or we would wanted to, but we knew we had to build relationships with these companies because. 
you know, we, you're, that would be illegal. Basically you can't like sell someone's product. You can't put their brand <laughs> on your site. We didn't want to start the relationship that way. Getting 200 would have been hard too. So we had to go to brands and I cold emailed brands. That's really um, what I did is just reached out to them and said, I'm going to change the beauty industry. And this is what I admire about your brand. And I'd love some advice. Can you give me 10 minutes? And I was in business school. So I think that helped. Um, And then that those calls, the ones that said, yes, I asked for meetings. And in the meetings, like we pitched them to be a part of the beta and we tried to get them to agree that like what results in the beta would allow them to then work with us out of beta. You talked about kind of one thing that was really important in terms of that, that funnel, when you talk about that buying experience was build a brand people trust. I'd love to hear from your experiences. What does it take to, what do you think? What are your core elements? What are the things that you guys have done in the past 10 years to build a brand that people trust? It takes honesty. It has to be real for you. Caring about the consumer has to be like, I mean, it's the only thing that matters. And that has to be something that the entire team kind of gets lit up about. And then the consumer feels it, you know, not trying to trick people into buying something, not trying to, you know, kind of bait and switch people into being a part of this, but rather like actually setting clear expectations with consumers, delivering on those expectations, exceeding expectations. And when you fall short of expectations, which is inevitable, facing it, right? And and owning it and talking about, you know, what are the, where are you in your career and how, and in the kind of stage of the business and, and what do you aspire to do? So if that didn't, if that didn't kind of satisfy a consumer, or if we had like a big error, which of course we did in the early days, you know, something would be expired that we mailed to tens of thousands of people that we hadn't looked at. And we had to, you know, really give customers their money back, but also make sure that we were cleaning up our processes and that wouldn't happen again. That's, that's how you build trust. I think that sometimes the mistakes are the biggest moments and what you do with them or the challenges are the biggest moments and how you face them and how you take responsibility and show customers that you care is a really big part of it. But I am consumed with the idea or the question of how you build these relationships at scale. I think it's fascinating because obviously the way you build a relationship is like one human to one human usually. Um, But it's the only thing that creates a true competitive advantage today. I mean, unless you are Elon Musk and you have some truly proprietary like science Um, which is still a fleeting, you know, proprietary thing. The only thing you have is relationships with consumers and consumers wanting you to win, caring about you, like the the reciprocity of care is unstoppable. You can, you can really stub your toe when a consumer wants you to win. You know, you can really miss and you have another chance because there's care on both sides. That's what a relationship means. It isn't just about trust on our side. It's, you know, reciprocal. So I've just found that to be one of the most rewarding, fascinating and challenging things about building a consumer brand in a discretionary category is how do you scale building relationships? And, you know, that's a little bit about how I think about it, but I think it's an ongoing question of where the relationships kind of, you know, are born and, and how do you really foster them over time and 
our ambition is to be with the consumers forever because we, again, we think this category of consumer, the casual consumer is overlooked. We think that she is not a priority and he is not a priority of any other beauty company. And we want to be the home for that consumer forever. So it's the lofty goal, you know, and it's a, it's a interesting question, but to the point you said earlier about this consumer, the chance for loyalty and the chance for stickiness is much higher. You just have to overcome the initial skepticism or a lack of like pursuit. This customer is not looking for Birchbox because they're fine. Yeah. Not sitting there being like, oh, I just wish I could consume beauty better. They're literally like, it is what it is. I guess this is as good as it gets. And they kind of come in and skeptical, which I think is also currency. And then they find something that they didn't, you know, ever believe they would love something that was like a life changer in beauty. I say life changer in quotes because nothing, none of this is that important, Um, but really helped them feel, you know, that they were accomplishing something more that they wanted to. And they are then kind of converted to believing that a beauty company could actually care about them. Mm. Yeah. This idea of, um, Building relationships at scale, when you think of all the companies like that, your favorite brands, you have some form of a relationship with them um, at, at, a, at a deep, intimate level. Like if I think about my fiance, she has a very, very strong relationship with Glossier. Mm-hmm. Like any product that comes out, and we're here in Melbourne, Australia, we have office in New York, so we go to New York quite often. And every time we, you know, get off the plane, she's locked in a session, she's going to go there because Glossier don't even ship to Australia. But that relationship is crazy. Like every new product, she stayed up late when they released the jumper, just the, just the Glossier jumper, right? Like because it's US time, you know, it's it'll be like 3 a.m. here in Melbourne when they open That's it up. Amazing. Wow. So let's talk about that because obviously, you know, you guys have uh, continued to grow and, uh, you know, there have been a lot of competitors that have popped up. Many, many here that I know in Australia as well that I've seen floating around. Um, so how do you, how do you foster this relationship at, and, and keep building new ones, but keep maintaining other ones? And Yeah. It's a, I mean, I think it's the, the most important question is how do you how do you do that when all of the context for consumers are changing? You know, when we launched in 2010, there was no competition. There was no Instagram. You know, yeah. there was barely YouTube vloggers. There was less ways for you to spend your time online. And that created what I guess you would refer to as arbitrage opportunities in terms of capturing people's imagination and time and building relationships. We had time to do it. You know, we actually would make, I I mean, the early days would be like seven minute videos. Have you ever watched a seven minute video today? That's not like SNL. You know, we, it used to be something where people, yeah, there was an opportunity to create more time and to kind of become more of a human in front of your consumers. And I think today it's harder. You have kind of 15 second increments and then maybe someone will watch the full minute and a half, right? Because there's just so much more competition for your eyes and for your time. And ultimately, I guess for your heart, you know, 
I don't think that everyone's really aspiring to the heart and to the relationship like we are, but ultimately we're, it's still a finite amount of time in the day. Um, so, you know, I think we haven't always done this well. I think there have been moments when you kind of get caught up in just whatever train is working, you know, you kind of get swept up in the thing that everyone else is doing. And we've been, you know, we've done that too, where if we're just really focused and when things started changing on social media for like likes and engagement, we would stray from our target customer because it was so much harder to find that customer. And it was easy to find people who would like images of beauty that are more traditional, you know? Um, so we, I think we lost our way sometimes because we got swept up in, you know, just generating the KPIs that we thought were important, finding audience, but losing that depth of purpose and that depth of like knowing what is the biggest opportunity here and even potentially like pandering for a consumer who we really have much less of a chance of being loyal and sticky and actually caring about the soapbox we feel we have. So it's just been walking that back um, and, and really talking about, you know, what we believe and what we really care about and finding the right moments. And so we, we really think and talk a lot about how our brand can feel like a human, um, which is obviously like the sum of a lot of humans, but how it itself feels human and how humans have different sides of their personality. And we really try to be thoughtful about you know, every human has a thing that they will get on a soapbox about and here's ours and here are things that we're going to talk to you about. And we also have the things that are just lighter and, you know, superficial and fun and we can be both of those things. So building the personality of the human is something that we just have decided like this takes time. And sometimes if we've done it well, then when we send an email that has 1000 words in it, people will read it. Um, but you know, not everything we write needs to be so heavy or, you know, weighty. So it's just more of a, like taking the long game of how do we create value for consumers and respect the fact that we don't have that much time to do that. We can't just ask you suddenly trust us, be in a relationship with us. Let's date. You know, we recognize that you're on the prowl. You're looking for where to spend your time. How do we earn that? And then kind of as we've earned that, give you places to go deeper because there's a lot of depth in what we do. Yeah, I love it. So um, I'd love to switch gears and talk about just the current times right now because one thing when I when I think of, you know, the current times, everything that's happening with COVID and, you know, businesses and businesses taking a hit, one thing that I think is important for sustainability in any business is having a subscription business model. Um and I think, uh, you know, that, that breeds predictability, right, in many different yeah. ways. Um, I'd love to hear kind of uh, what are you guys doing differently? Have you been affected? Uh, yeah, what, what can you can, can and can you can't share? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think that we took this as a real opportunity to be even more bold about the customer and about, you know, what we are here trying to do and try to differentiate ourselves further um, in the market, because one of the opportunities coming from this is that there is less competition for those eyeballs. And that is very clear. People have more time and there's less people competing for that time. So how do we take that as like a relationship building moment um, and not just chasing, I guess, volume and top line revenue, though there are opportunities there, which are you know, like I said, I haven't seen them in so many years in this market. 
Um, but instead of just chasing that kind of arbitrarily or without thinking about the relationship, how do we like do more to, in conjunction with finding more consumers because there's time, make sure that they're the right consumer, set clear expectations up front of what we are. So we're just doubling down everywhere on explaining like both the philosophy of like what we're trying to do and very tactically, here's what you can expect because to your point, how do you build relationships at scale and trust? You have to set clear expectations, right? And um, we want people to understand, you know, what they can expect from Birchbox so that then they're set up to value that and hopefully we are set up to exceed that. So we've just taken more time there versus I think um, in the internet of before COVID, it was just a lot more about like the three second, you know, ads and how do you stand out in this market, particularly when everyone's kind of monthly subscription looks very similar, right? Mm-hmm. Um so we've just kind of gotten out of that game and we've put more of our resources into this effort of differentiation um, and of not trying to just bring you in from like the low hanging fruit of, I guess, like the incentive to come. Yeah. Or like kind of a direct response, expecting kind of uh, an immediate conversion. You guys want to play the long game, put out more top of funnel content, all yeah. sorts of things like that. Right. I mean, and we're doing both, but yes, it's more of that. And we're kind of seeing every, we're even trying to see if like mid and bottom funnel, if we can push more of those kind of traditionally brand or top of funnel concepts through, right? So again, we can establish the relationships we want. It's it's also about what we want to spend our time doing, you know, what we think is interesting. I've never thought it was interesting to sell someone a sample. You know, I never mm-hmm. found it compelling to like, trick you into like an annuity for us. Like I always have found it most fascinating to understand how you can build relationships and loyalty at scale and actually change people's behavior in a way that doesn't feel incongruous to their values, where there's a fundamental shift and and that will be seen in like spend. And it doesn't feel to be at odds with who you are. You don't feel tricked. You don't feel like you were just caught up in some pyramid scheme, you feel empowered and you invest because you want to, you know, and I find that to be fascinating and hard, but, you know, I, and I think that's a really big part of what drives us is picking something that's hard and actually trying to drive real value in consumers' lives. And I think that, you know, that's a worthy way to spend our days. Yeah, I agree 110%. So um, I'd love to talk about, the now as well for anyone watching this that is thinking about starting a direct-to-consumer physical products business or brand, do you think now is a good time? Do you think now is an incredible opportunity? If so, also in the subscription space, what advice would you give as being kind of one of the OGs started uh, getting into this stuff? Yeah, I mean, I honestly think that it, there's not some blanket answer to that. I think it really does depend on, you know, the insight that you have. I've always personally believed that the insight is much more important than the manifestation of the insight, which is like the product or the service. And is that insight in a particularly like heightened moment of reality? Is that like even more exacerbated by this or is it less? So I think asking yourself that question first is the most important thing. And second, you know, I am so happy to be in a subscription business. And to your point, there's a lot of predictability it affords and it's extremely valuable, but I am not the person who believes everything should be a subscription. 
Um, and I think asking that question of why a subscription now, here's my belief system of what subscription can afford. It allows a passive consumer to have a very different kind of experience consuming. And so for me, I think that this opportunity to imagine for consumers who have to be passive because of time or because they don't have as much passion about a category, what is a way to create a consumption experience that's more like an active consumer, right? For people who want to spend a ton of time. And one way in some categories is a subscription because it allows for this like, you know, introduction of product over time and it allows you to not have to choose and have to engage. But it's not the only way to help consumers kind of remain passive and improve their experiences. So I always just try to think like, does it does it really make sense for the consumer? Not for you. Yes, annuities are business model and evaluation and what investors want. Yeah. Do you really think this is something that makes sense for a consumer to like sign up for and kind of indefinitely be paying for? Or maybe it's a subscription that you imagine stopping. You know, maybe it isn't indefinite, but I I do agree with you that subscription has a powerful, you know, revenue model. I've never thought of it as a business model. And I think that it's something that can be a great aid to the consumer. But I do believe it's important to be thoughtful. Like, is this something that is that? Or am I just trying to help people consume in a more passive way? And maybe there's a different way, or maybe it's something that ends that kind of, you know, evolves into something else for consumers. Um, And that's my opinion. Yeah, no, I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned that because my next question was the subscription, everything model. Like it seems that everybody wants to launch a subscription for everything. And uh, I wanted to hear your take. So, you know, you've answered that. Amazingly. So um, I'm curious around kind of trends, uh, anything that is exciting to you in the direct to consumer space or yeah, where do you think the market will go post all of this stuff? I mean, I have a lot of optimism and optimism and hope um, that this is a great opportunity to kind of reimagine like the rules of engagement for everyone and, and, and rethink how we can create relationships with consumers in new ways. Um, I think, I mean, I think the opportunity is going to allow for creators for entrepreneurs to maybe feel a little bit more empowered to invent reality right now and to question the ways we all expect to engage because the consumer is more in a mindset of kind of being upended and not, you know, maybe recognizing how much we could change as consumers will allow entrepreneurs or, you know, business leaders who are entrepreneurial to really like fundamentally question something and potentially create great value from that for everybody, whether it's like, you know, everybody, including the company and the consumer and maybe also the environment, Um, And kind of saying, well, you know, we've said the only way you can buy this thing or consume this thing is in these two ways. And, you know, this is like how it works. Like, well, I mean, what if that wasn't the, what if there was no constraints? You know, what would consumers be willing to do? I mean, they were willing to do this crazy thing that I think everyone thought, you know, how can we get society to agree to this? Um, And I, and I think that could create a lot of goodness. And I hope that there's a real commitment to taking this moment of openness from the consumer of like real willingness to change, to create something that has more than just 
value for capitalism and really is about also building the world we want to live in, the world we want to leave to our future generations, as much as it is about creating economic incentive, because I believe that's important too. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, Thank you for sharing. So look, we have to work towards wrapping up, mindful of your time. Um, So a couple last questions. Um, One, just around kind of what's exciting for you, uh, like coming into the, I guess, next, you know, 12 months, what's really, really exciting for Birchbox. And two, what are your biggest challenges uh, at the moment? And then the last one is where's the best place people can find out more about yourself and your work? Sure. Um, Yeah. So what we're working on, I'd say is a few things. One is that because we've had an opportunity coming from some challenges, but it's been an opportunity to really refocus on this consumer. We also have decided that there's an opportunity to create specific products and brands for that consumer. So we launched our own brands in 2014 at towards the end of 2014 Um, kind of before this insight around who we wanted to build for was as really firm. And so we relaunched um, our first brand this year and we spent over a year and a half reformulating product and just really being obsessed about not creating a brand that is, um, you know, redundant in the market that is just replicating others insights or others products, but really is specifically thought about for this casual consumer. And that brand is called Arrow and we've just been relaunching product and we'll be sampling aggressively that product, um, you know, throughout the year and into 2021. And we're thinking about new brands too. We're working on some new ideas. Um, Again, with this idea of like this casual consumer, what are the categories that matter to them? And are there the right products in those categories at the right price point with the right, you know, positioning? So, you know, really just trying to think about like, how do we create real value? We don't want to just be another thing. Um, and then the other thing is that, you know, we we kind of created and invented this um, category 10 years ago. And we've been dreaming for the past four years about its evolution um, and have been constrained by having the right resources on our side to really reimagine it and some ways like invest in the stack because our stack is really old from a technical perspective. So we're doing that now. We're finally in a place where we can um, kind of rebuild everything. And we have big plans to change the way a subscription is even envisioned for our consumer Um, and introduce kind of a new way of engaging and hopefully building relationships with consumers in next year. So we're, we're well in, you know, that project, we're, we're far into that, and really excited about it. Um, And so that those are kind of the two things that are not new, but, you know, invigorated focuses for the company. Yeah, well, exciting. So you guys aren't using Shopify? (laughs) <laughs> we, we we were pre-Shopify, you know, we were so early that nothing existed that now exists. You can just take a recurly and plug it into Shopify. And, you know, you know, we don't have some of the even like core functionality that is wonderful about Shopify because we built something a really long time ago and there's a lot of customization in what we do and how it interacts with this like, um, you know, recurring revenue versus an e-commerce shop. So, I won't bore you, nor am I technical, um, but it's it's really kind of tied our hands with like the vision of what we want the consumer experience to be. And, and we are untying our hands and have a lot of ideas of how we can create even more value for consumers 
um, and continue to stay relevant as a service and as an offering. So I'm really pumped about it. It's been a long time in the making. Yeah, no, I can imagine. Um, amazing. So uh, last question is, where's the best place people can find out more about uh, yourself and uh, Birchbox? So Birchbox, you can go to birchbox.com. Probably going to Birchbox on Instagram is a great place. Um, you can, we have UK, we have Spain as well, depending on where you're listening from. For myself, I don't really have a landing home. I'm not very active on Instagram, just on my personal channels. Um, I don't know. You can just reach out to me, you know, ping me if you have a question. <laughs> All right. Amazing. Well, look, thank you so much for taking the time. It's so nice to meet you. Thanks for being so prepared and for all the great questions. I really appreciate that. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.